Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. June 12. On this date in history, in the year 1920, Big Red sets a record at the Belmont Stakes. Man o' War wins the 52nd Belmont Stakes and sets the record for the fastest mile ever run by a horse to that time. Man o' War was the biggest star yet in a country obsessed with horse racing and the most successful thoroughbred of his generation. Man o' War was sired by the champion Fair Play, one of the most successful sires in racing history and purchased by Samuel D. Riddle in 1918 from August Belmont, Jr., son of the racing guru for whom the Belmont Stakes was named. A two-year-old in 1919, Man of War, won nine out of ten races under jockey Johnny Loftus. His only loss that year came at the Sanford Memorial Stakes, in which his back was to the starting line at the beginning of the race. At that time, before the advent of starting gates, a rope was all that held horses back from starting their run. The Sanford turned out to be the only loss of Man O' War's racing career. As a three-year-old, Man O' War dominated the field. Loftus was denied a jockey's license that year, so Clarence Cummer rode Big Red as Man O' War came to be known. The horse skipped the Kentucky Derby as his trainers deemed the mile-and-a-quarter race to be too grueling so early in the season. So the Preakness Stakes was Manowar's coming-out party. He won easily. Manowar entered the Belmont Stakes as an overwhelming 1-20 to favorite, largely because only one horse, Donnacona, was entered against him. With victory over Donnacona seemingly assured, Big Red's real race that year was against the world record for a mile and three furlongs, 2.16.8, which had been set in 1908 by the horse Dean Swift in Liverpool, England. The American record of 2.17.4 had been set by Sir Barton at the 1919 Belmont. Man o' War took more than two seconds off both times, running the race in 2.14.2 on his way to a 20-length victory. Donna finished the race a full 1.16th of a mile behind the winner. In his final race, Manowar defeated the 1919 Triple Crown winner, Sir Barton, by seven lengths at the Kenilworth Park Gold Cup in Windsor, Ontario. It marked Manowar's 20th win in 21 races. June 13. On this date in history in the year 1966, the Miranda rights are established. The U.S. Supreme Court hands down its decision in Miranda v. Arizona establishing the principle that all criminal suspects must be advised of their rights before interrogation. Now considered standard police procedure, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. 
you have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be appointed to you. Has been heard so many times in television and film dramas that it has become almost cliché. The roots of the Miranda decision go back to March 2, 1963, when an 18-year-old Phoenix woman told police that she had been abducted, driven to the desert, and raped. Detectives questioning her story gave her a polygraph test, but the results were inconclusive. However, tracking the license plate number of a car that resembled that of her attackers brought police to Ernesto Miranda, who had a prior record as a peeping Tom. Although the victim did not identify Miranda in a lineup, he was brought into police custody and interrogated. What happened next is disputed, but officers left the interrogation with a confession that Miranda later recanted, unaware that he didn't have to say anything at all. The confession was extremely brief and differed in certain respects from the victim's account of the crime. However, Miranda's appointed defense attorney, who was paid $100, didn't call any witnesses at the ensuing trial, and Miranda was convicted. While Miranda was in Arizona State Prison, the American Civil Liberties Union took up his appeal, claiming that the confession was false and coerced. The Supreme Court overturned his conviction, but Miranda was retried and convicted in October 1966. Remaining in prison until 1972, Ernesto Miranda was later stabbed to death in the men's room of a bar after a poker game in January 1976. As a result of the case against Miranda, each and every person must now be informed of his or her rights when in custody and about to be interrogated. However, on June 23, 2022, the Supreme Court ruled that law enforcement officers may not be sued for damages under federal civil rights law for failing to issue the Miranda warnings to suspects. June 14. On this date in history, in the year 1951, UNIVAC, the first commercially produced digital computer, is dedicated. The U.S. Census Bureau dedicates UNIVAC, the first commercially produced electronic digital computer in the United States. UNIVAC, which stood for Universal Automatic Computer, was developed by a team of engineers led by J. Presper Eckert and John Motchley, makers of ENIAC, the first general-purpose electronic digital computer. These giant computers, which used thousands of vacuum tubes for computation, were the forerunners of today's digital computers. The search for mechanical devices to aid computation began in ancient times. The abacus, developed in various forms by the Babylonians, Chinese, and Romans, was by definition the first digital computer because it calculated values by using digits. A mechanical digital calculating machine was built in France in 1642, but a 19th century Englishman, Charles Babbage, is credited with devising most of the principles on which modern computers are based. His analytical engine, begun in the 1830s and never completed for lack of funds, was based on a mechanical loom and would have been the first programmable computer. By the 1920s, Companies such as the International Business Machine Corporation, IBM, were supplying governments and businesses with complex punch card tabulating systems, but these mechanical devices had only a fraction of the calculating power of the first electronic digital computer. 
the Atanasoff Berry Computer, ABC, completed by John Atanasoff of Iowa State in 1939, the ABC could, by 1941, solve up to 29 simultaneous equations with 29 variables. Influenced by Atanasoff's work, Presper Eckert and John Motchley set about building the first general-purpose electronic digital computer in 1943. The sponsor was the U.S. Army Ordnance Department, which wanted a better way of calculating artillery firing tables, and the work was done at the University of Pennsylvania. ENIAC, which stood for Electronic Numerical Integrator and Calculator, was completed in 1946 at a cost of nearly $500,000. It took up 15,000 feet, employed 17,000 vacuum tubes, and was programmed by plugging and replugging some 6,000 switches. It was first used in a calculation for Los Alamos Laboratories in December 1945, and in February 1946, it was formally dedicated. Following the success of ENIAC, Eckert and Motchley decided to go into private business and founded the Eckert Motchley Computer Corporation. They proved less able businessmen than they were engineers, and in 1950, their struggling company was acquired by Remington Rand, an office equipment company. On June 14, 1951, Remington Rand delivered its first computer, Univac 1, to the U.S. Census Bureau. It weighed 16,000 pounds used 5,000 vacuum tubes, and could perform about 1,000 calculations per second. On November 4, 1952, the UNIVAC achieved national fame when it correctly predicted Dwight D. Eisenhower's unexpected landslide victory in the presidential election after only a tiny percentage of the votes were in. UNIVAC and other first-generation computers were replaced by transistor computers of the late 1950s, which were smaller, used less power, and could perform nearly a thousand times more operations per second. These were, in turn, supplanted by the integrated circuit machines of the mid-1960s and 1970s. In the 1980s, the development of the microprocessor made possible small, powerful computers such as the personal computer and, more recently, the laptop and handheld devices. June 15. On this date in history, in the year 1300, Dante is named Prior of Florence. Poet Dante Alighieri becomes one of six priors of Florence, active in governing the city. Dante's political activities, which include the banishment of several rivals, led to his own exile from Florence, his native city, after 1302. He will write his great work, the Divine Comedy as a virtual wanderer, seeking protection for his family in town after town. Dante was born to a family with noble ancestry whose fortunes had fallen. His father was a moneylender. Dante began writing poetry in his teens and received encouragement from established poets to whom he sent sonnets as a young man. At age nine, Dante first caught a glimpse of Beatrice Portinari, also nine, who would symbolize for him perfect female beauty and spiritual goodness in the coming decades. Despite his fervent devotion to Portinari, 
who did not seem to return his feelings, Dante became engaged to Gemma Donati in 1277, but the two did not marry until eight years later. The couple had six sons and a daughter. About 1293, Dante published a book of prose and poetry called The New Life, followed a few years later by another collection, The Banquet. It wasn't until his banishment that he began work on his Divine Comedy. In the poem's first book, Dante takes a tour through hell with the poet Virgil and his guide. Virgil also guides the poet through purgatory in the second book. The poet's guide in paradise, however, is named Beatrice. The work was written and published in sections between 1308 and 1321. Although Dante called the work simply comedy, the work became enormously popular, and a deluxe version published in 1555 in Venice bore the title The Divine Comedy. Dante died of malaria in Ravenna in 1321. June 16. On this date in history, in the year 1884, the first roller coaster opens in America. The first roller coaster in America opens at Coney Island in Brooklyn, New York. Known as a switchback railway, it was the brainchild of Lamarcus Thompson, traveled approximately six miles per hour, and cost a nickel to ride. The new entertainment was an instant success, and by the turn of the century, there were hundreds of roller coasters around the country. Coney Island, a name believed to have come from the Dutch Congen Ilant, or Rabbit Island, is a tract of land along the Atlantic Ocean discovered by explorer Henry Hudson in 1609. The first hotel opened at Coney Island in 1829, and by the post-Civil War years, the area was an established resort with theaters, restaurants, and a racetrack. Between 1897 and 1904, free amusement parks sprang up at Coney Island Dreamland, Luna Park, and Steeplechase. By the 1920s, Coney Island was reachable by subway and summer crowds of a million people a day flocked there for rides, games, sideshows, the beach, and the two-and-a-half-mile boardwalk, completed in 1923. The hot dog is said to have been invented at Coney Island in 1867 by Charles Feltman. In 1916, a nickel hot dog stand called Nathan's was opened by a former Feltman employee and went on to become a Coney Island institution and international franchise. Today, Nathan's is famous not only for its hot dogs, but its hot dog eating contest held each 4th of July in Coney Island. Roller coasters and amusement parks experienced a decline during the Great Depression and World War II when Americans had less cash to spend on entertainment. Finally, in 1955, the opening of Disneyland in Anaheim, California, signaled the advent of the modern theme park and a rebirth of the roller coaster. Disneyland's success sparked a wave of new parks and coasters. By the 1970s, parks were competing to create the most thrilling rides. By the mid-1960s, the major amusement parks at Coney Island had shut down and the area acquired a seedy image. In recent decades, it has been revitalized, however, and remains a popular tourist attraction. It's still home to the Cyclone, 
a wooden coaster that made its debut in 1927, capable of speeds of 60 miles per hour and with an 85-foot drop. The Cyclone is one of the country's oldest coasters in operation today. June 17. On this date in history, in the year 1876, Native Americans score victory at the Battle of the Rosebud. Sioux and Cheyenne Native Americans score a tactical victory over General Crook's forces at the Battle of the Rosebud, foreshadowing the disaster of the Battle of the Little Bighorn eight days later. General George Crook was in command of one of three columns of soldiers converging on the Bighorn country of southern Montana that June. A large band of Sioux and Cheyenne Indians, under the direction of Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, and several other chiefs, had congregated in the area in defiance of U.S. demands that the Native Americans confine themselves to reservations. The Army viewed the tribes' refusal as an opportunity to dispatch a massive three-pronged attack. Crook's column, marching north from Fort Fetterman in Wyoming Territory, was to join with two others, General Gibbon's column coming east from Fort Ellis in Montana Territory and General Terry's force coming west from Fort Abraham Lincoln in Dakota Territory. Terry's force included the soon-to-be-famous 7th Cavalry under the command of George Custer. The vast distances and lack of reliable communications made it difficult to coordinate but the three armies planned to converge on the valley of the Bighorn River and stage an assault on an enemy whose location and size was only vaguely known. The plan quickly ran into trouble. As Crook approached the Bighorn, his scouts informed him that they had found signs of a major Sioux force that must still be nearby. Crook was convinced that the Sioux were encamped in a large village somewhere along the Rosebud Creek, just east of the Bighorn. Like most of his fellow officers, Crook believed that Indians were more likely to flee than stand and fight, and he was determined to find the village and attack before the Sioux could escape into the wilderness. Crook's allies, 262 Crow and Shoshone warriors, were less certain. They suspected the Sioux force was under the command of Crazy Horse, the brilliant war chief. Crazy Horse, they warned, was too shrewd to give Crook an opportunity to attack a stationary village. Crook soon learned that his allies were right. Around 8 a.m. on June 17, 1876, Crook halted his force of about 1,300 men in the bowl of a small valley along the Rosebud Creek in order to allow the rear of the column to catch up. Crook's soldiers unsaddled and let their horses graze while they relaxed in the grass and enjoyed the cool morning air. The American soldiers were out in the open, divided, and unprepared. Suddenly, several Indian scouts rode into the camp at a full gallop. Sioux, 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 they shouted. Many Sioux. Within minutes, a mass of Sioux warriors began to converge on the army. A force of at least 1,500 mounted Sioux warriors caught Crook's soldiers by surprise. Crazy Horse had kept an additional 2,500 warriors in reserve to finish the attack. Fortunately for Crook, one segment of his army was not caught unprepared. 
his 262 Crow and Shoshone allies had taken up advanced positions about 500 yards from the main body of soldiers. With astonishing courage, the Indian warriors boldly countercharged the much larger invading force. They managed to blunt the initial attack long enough for Crook to regroup his men and send soldiers forward to support his Indian allies. The fighting continued until noon, when the Sioux, perhaps hoping to draw Crook's army into an ambush, retreated from the field. The combined force of 4,000 Sioux warriors had outnumbered Crook's divided and unprepared army by more than three to one. Had it not been for the wisdom and courage of Crook's allies, Americans today might well remember the Battle of the Rosebud as they do the subsequent Battle of the Little Bighorn. As it was, Crook's team was badly bloodied, 28 men were killed, and 56 were seriously wounded. Crook had no choice but to withdraw and regroup. Crazy Horse had lost only 13 men, and his warriors were emboldened by their successful attack on the American soldiers. Eight days later, they would join with their tribesmen in the Battle of the Little Bighorn, which would wipe out George Custer and his 7th Cavalry. June 18. On this date in history, in the year 1983, Sally Ride becomes the first American woman in space. The Space Shuttle Challenger is launched into space on its second mission on June 18, 1983. On board the shuttle is Dr. Sally K. Ride, who, as a mission specialist, becomes the first American woman to travel into space. Ride, who had earlier pursued a professional tennis career, answered a newspaper ad in 1977 from NASA calling for young, tech-savvy scientists who could work as mission specialists. The United States had screened a group of female pilots in 1959 and 1960 for possible astronaut training, but later decided to restrict astronaut qualification to men. In 1978, NASA changed its policy and announced that it had approved six women out of some 3,000 original applicants to become the first female astronauts in the U.S. space program. Ride was a Stanford University alum. She received a Bachelor of Science degree in Physics, a Bachelor of Arts degree in English, as well as a Master of Science and Doctorate in Physics. She became an on-the-ground capsule communicator, CAPCOM, for NASA's STS-2 and STS-3 missions in 1981 and 1982, becoming an expert in controlling the shuttle's robotic arm. NASA announced Ride would be part of the STS-7 crew on April 30, 1982, serving as a mission specialist and joining Commander Robert L. Crippen, mission specialist, John M. Fabian, physician, astronaut Norman E. Thagard, and pilot Frederick H. Haug on the historic flight. Over six days, the crew's complex tasks included launching commercial communication satellites for Indonesia and Canada and deploying and receiving a satellite using the shuttle's robotic arm. Ride, who was 32 at the time, was the first woman to operate the shuttle's mechanical arm. The mission also included experiments such as the study of the effects of zero gravity on the social behavior of an ant colony, research surrounding metal alloys in microgravity, 
and space sickness investigations. I was one of a couple of astronauts that became heavily involved in the simulator work to verify that the simulators accurately modeled the arm to develop procedures for using the arm in orbit to develop the malfunction procedures so astronauts would know what to do if something went wrong, Ride told the NASA Johnson Space Center's Oral History Project in 2002. There weren't any checklists when we started. We developed them all. The mission, NASA's seventh, ended June 24, 1983, when the Challenger returned to Earth and, coincidentally, took place on roughly the 20th anniversary of the history-making launch of the Soviet cosmonaut Valentina V. Tereshkova's flight as the first woman in space on June 16, 1963. Ride again made history when she became the first American woman to fly to space a second time on October 5, 1984, on shuttle mission STS-41G, where she was part of a seven-member crew that spent eight days in space. As with her first flight, Ride used the shuttle's robotic arm, this time to remove ice from the exterior of the ship and to readjust equipment. Another woman, mission specialist Catherine D. Sullivan, was also part of that crew, making it the first NASA space flight with two women aboard. Sullivan became the first American woman to walk in space during that mission. A third mission for Ride was canceled following the explosion of the Challenger on January 28, 1986, in which all seven crew members, including teacher Krista McAuliffe, were killed. Ride was assigned to the Rogers Commission, a presidential commission charged with investigating the disaster. She later served as special assistant to the NASA administrator before leaving the agency in 1987 and returning to academia. Ride died of pancreatic cancer in 2012 at age 61. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for June 12 through June 18. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.